Richard Morgan's first novel, Altered Carbon, was a brutal noir mystery with complex characterizations, but realized in a compelling future. His protagonist, Takeshi Kovacs, returned in the sequel, Broken Angels, now out as a U.S. Del Rey trade paperback. His newest novel from Victor Gollanx in the U.K. is Market Forces, a savage satire of business and violence. Welcome to Fine Print, Richard. Hi. Richard, let's talk about Altered Carbon first, because it was such an explosion of a novel on the scene. Uh-huh. How much preparation did you do before you actually wrote that novel? Well, uh, in terms of conscious preparation, uh, none at all, really. I mean, I, I, you know, I sat down and I wrote it, and uh, and then later on I, I revised it slightly. But uh, the, the character of Kovac had been sitting around in short stuff that I'd written uh, and, and kind of ideas I'd had and so forth. And that had all been lying around for a long time. I guess I'd been writing these, these short pieces on and off for about 10 years. So... I had a pretty clear idea. Well, no, that's not fair. I didn't have a pretty clear idea. I had, I had very strong intimations of what I wanted from my my, my background. You know, my 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 universe. I, so the protectorate had kind of taken shape in my head, more or less. And again, Kovac, where he was from, his home world. These kind of things were pretty clear to me because I'd been describing them in short stories on and off. Altered Carbon wasn't didn't really come to life as a Kovac novel. It was originally uh, this idea of of what happened. You know, a crime where. What are you responsible for something that you did that you don't remember? Uh, you know, if the the person that you are isn't the same person who committed that crime, to what extent can you be responsible for it? And uh, it was only when I realised I was going to be writing a detective story that, that you know this this required a detective. Uh, I, I I kind of looked back through my my back catalogue of unpublished short stories and things, and uh, and there was Takeshi Kovac, and so I, I dug him out and put him into the story, and it, obviously it made it a lot easier. I, I was in a position to write a lot more uh, smoothly because this stuff was already on tap. I didn't have to dream it up. Richard, tell us how you got started in writing. What inspired you to write from the first place? And then where did you start writing and what? Okay, well, I've been writing as long as I can remember. I'm one of these kids who was scribbling stories in their exercise book as, you know, at school instead of studying. And I think... The first, I, I, I was, I think, like a lot of kids, I think certainly like, like uh, Isaac Asimov. Apparently, he started writing because he wanted to read something like the, the, you know, the Amazing Stories uh, publications that he enjoyed. So he started writing what he liked to read, and it was the same for me. I started, I guess, when the first thing I wrote outside of my school exercise books was. Uh, I started writing a, a kind of, I guess, a fantasy novel, when a kind of fantasy epic when I was about 14. And I kept writing and kept writing and kept writing through my teens, and it never got any closer to, to conclusion, but that lasted me till my late teens. And then I kind of changed horses, I started to get more interested in SF rather than fantasy. And when I graduated from university, or the year I graduated from university, I wrote this very violent, near-future, kind of dystopian police procedural called Ethics on the Precipice, which happily no longer exists now. It uh, it wasn't that, it really wasn't that great. But I tried to sell it to everybody and nobody wanted it. But everybody was very encouraging, you know, to show us your next novel, you have talent, uh, you know how to write, etc., etc. So that, that, that kind of kept me on track. And, and, and then I just kept bashing away. And, and eventually, this is what I came out with. Your combination of extreme violence and mystery and science fiction is pretty notable. Why do you find stories that require such violence? Right, well, good question. I, I think a certain amount of the violence in my in my work to begin with, I think, was a reaction to what I used to do for a living. I, I used to be an um, English as a second language teacher. That is a job which requires... An, 
an astounding degree of of patience and tolerance. You you the, the whole thrust of what of, of ESL or EFL we call it in in the UK is that the students should speak and not you, preferably. You know, you're, you're aiming to teach them how to speak English, so if you're talking all the time and they're just listening to you, that isn't helping that much. In order to get them to speak, they need to be confident and comfortable, and therefore you have to try and make the, 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 the classroom a friendly, warm environment and, and not to frighten them in any way. And, I mean, in all seriousness, there are... There are teaching manuals with titles like Caring and Sharing in the EFL Classroom. You know, that, that's an actual book. So there's a kind of touchy-feely ethic to it, which, you know, I'm laughing at now, but it, you do, it, you have to, if you want it to work, you, you really do have to be pretty touchy-feely. That's fine as far as it goes, but, you know, what do you do when the, the guy that you're being touchy-feely with is an asshole? You know, uh, when, 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 you know, people are saying things that just... just drive you crazy uh, but you you know you can't you can't respond obviously uh, and i mean i give you that i always give the, the the most extreme example but i think it's it's a telling one you know what do you do when you're faced with a, a group of students in fact not just one who on on the subject of hitler coming up say oh yeah now that was a guy who really knew how to handle the jews there is nothing you can say to that is there i mean they, they, you know you you take them out and shoot them the, there there is nothing there is no what I tried to do at the time was a sort of a, a, an attempt to, well, let's talk about this, you know, let's get, let's, but these students, well, you know, there's a reason that they had that opinion and that was because they'd been inculcated from a very early age in a hatred of the state of Israel and, and um, therefore of Jews in general. And you're not getting through that in, you know, an hour and a half class, there's no way. And that was, while that was the, the, the most distressing of the, of the examples there are many many more i mean people who come from cultural backgrounds where they're convinced that their culture is the greatest in the world and that yours isn't you know and again another student i remember who uh, a korean student in fact who'd been in britain for all of three weeks and we were we were working on comparative sentences you know more than less than etc etc and said okay we're going to compare you you know what you feel about your own town and your own country and your own culture and, and living here in london and so you know she comes out immediately you know, completely without hesitation just says yes korean people are hard-working and british people are much more lazy than korean people and korean people like to work and they are happy in their jobs and they want to they want to work hard but british people only think about their holidays and don't like to work uh, you know and you can't strangle these people you know because it's your job not to so I, i'm convinced that over the years as a, a kind of compacted form of rage sat it somewhere inside me and kovach was a kind of expression of that because here's a guy who you know if you say the wrong thing to him you're dead you know and just takes your head off and has no 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 compunction as far as human life is concerned that's the kind of outside context the inside context is that most of what I write is about power and the abuse of power. It's specifically the abuse of power by governmental structures, um, state organizations, corporate bodies, that kind of thing. And there is an implicit violence in the way that is done anyway. Uh, uh, you know, by definition, government enforcement, um, corporate enforcement is, is a form of violence. And therefore, any kind of reaction against it is also going to be a form of violence. And it's inevitable, therefore, that the conflicts that come out of that will will be violent conflicts and I, i'm a firm believer in you know when something when when you're describing violence you should really describe it that you shouldn't attempt to kind of gloss over it one of the I'm a, you know one of my pet hates is the a-team I, I always hated the way in the a-team you know the, you know, the, the air would fill with machine gun bullets and there'd be cars 
upending, exploding, crashing left, right and centre, fist fights. Mr. T would beat a guy to pulp. And at the end of it, he's not even bleeding, you know, from the mouth or anything. He just... And, the you know, the mercenaries, the, uh, sorry, the, the bad guys, they kind of pick themselves out of out of the wreckage and they go, damn, if it hadn't been for you meddling mercenaries, I would have got away with it. Uh, you know, I hate that. That, that, that. That's worse. It's far worse to show that kind of thing to, to impressionable minds than it is to let them see, for example, Reservoir Dogs. You know, which in the end makes a pretty firm case for for you know for not being an armed robber. It, the unequivocal message behind Reservoir Dogs is, yeah, these guys look cool, but actually they'll kill you if you step out of line, or they'll cut pieces of your anatomy off. They're not nice people. So, so I think, yeah, I, violence you, you can't evade it. You either do it or you don't. And if you're going to do it, then I think you have to do it to the extent that you feel the pain of it, if you like. So, by definition, any violence that crops up in my books, while it might be exhilarating at the time. I mean, gun battles and where Kovac is shooting down the bad guys. Yeah, there's an exhilaration that goes with that, and it'd be lying to say that you can't. There's there's not a certain pleasure to be derived from from that kind of thing. But afterwards come the consequences. Afterwards comes the the, the realization of you know that the, the violence has consequences. You know, that there's always a downside to it. And yeah, so you come away maybe exhilarated, but hopefully also sickened because I you know that's what violence does. I think I, I've talked to you know number of people who who've been in combat situations, and what they say is that. It's actually very exciting and even pleasurable once you get used to the, you know, the, the, the fear. And, and this is the problem, really, that, yeah, violence is, is immensely attractive, certainly to males. I, I mean, with, with, with women, I'm not conv- – I don't know if the – I don't think the biology works the same way. Uh, there are bound to be women who would disagree with that, but I'd say you can't speak for an entire sex that way. But certainly for the male – Psychology seems to actually get on with violence quite well and enjoy it to a certain extent. But yet there is always the wreckage afterwards. And what I try and do is, is, is give a balanced view and provide both of those. You know, yes, the exhilaration, yes, the excitement, but yes, the blood and guts and, oh, God, what have we done? You know, because that's all part of it. As a writer, when you're writing these scenes of violence, do you find yourself becoming excited? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, if 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 I've done it well, it uh, it, it grips me. Yeah, it has. It, it depends. I mean, there are some because very often you have to rework it. I mean, there's a scene in in the book that's just come out in the UK, Market Forces, where someone's beaten to death, and I wrote it once, and then I looked through it and thought, actually, this doesn't this doesn't bite enough. This is a little too cartoon like. So I had to go back and rework it so that it was was more unpleasant and, and kind of bloodier or gorier would be a better way of putting it. And yeah, so in situations like that, you don't necessarily feel it as much. But there are times when, yeah, when you you bang out the scene very quickly, and there is a kind of trembly excitement to it as you're writing it down. And you hope, I suppose, that that's what's transferred to the person who's reading it as well. You know, the same applies to the sex scenes in in my books. Yeah, I would hope that they're arousing. Yeah, maybe not to an embarrassingly extreme extent, but because you may be reading this on a bus, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they should be. Erotic, they should be arousing. I, you know, sex on on balance. I think sex is a good thing, and I, I try and give it a good rap in 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 what I write. So, by definition, if I'm writing about sex, it will be relatively explicit because that's where the arousal comes from. I, I'm not a fan of the kind of five dots and we fade out diplomatically until until such time as we can start the story again. Kind of thing. Ian Fleming novels always used to. It was a strange thing about Ian Fleming. He he wrote very eloquently about corruption and violence and sort of the nastier elements of of the world that he was describing. But on sex, he was a complete failure. The sex was always at the end of a chapter. Bond and the girl disappear in behind closed doors and you know nothing. It's all left to your imagination. There's a place for, in writing, for leaving things to to the imagination, but only when Leaving it to the imagination will will give the reader more than if you had described explicitly. And, and, and there are times when, certainly with violence, that if you leave the violence 
certain elements of it to be imagined, that's far worse than describing it in depth. But most of the time you need a certain amount of explicitness, and certainly that's true with sex as well. You're writing mystery and science fiction. How much does the science fiction settings that you've created in which your mysteries unfold, how much do they influence the mysteries, and how much does the mystery you're writing about, the essential mystery question you're trying to solve or your detective's trying to solve, how much does that influence the science fiction setting? Well, it's a bit of both, I think. With Altered Carbon, I had the idea of this kind of commit a crime, but then you can't remember committing it, and therefore are you responsible? That was the idea, and then the science fiction setting kind of came because you can't tell a story like that without the science fiction. By definition, the guy who commits this crime, the person who actually committed it is dead, and it's a new copy of, of the same guy. I'm not a religious man. There was no way to examine that that didn't involve future technology, so, so that's why it, it became a science fiction novel. And then the rest came after that. In other areas, it was a case of the, the technology coming first and thinking, yeah, no, that's great, I'd like to explore that. And then the story came in after that. So it, 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 it really depends on the exact circumstance, a little bit of both. I find that writing is a lot like making candy floss in that you start with something very insubstantial and, and sort of filmy and by stirring it around and it gathers bulk, it gathers density and you end up with something hopefully that's convincing. And sometimes that process starts with a plot element yeah, the, the mystery in Altered Carbon. Sometimes it starts with a perception of technological change and what would come as a result of that. But in the end, what you end up with all of it mingled together. You know, say a bit like candy floss, it just loads on and loads on and loads on until you've, until you've got a density that works. Tell us about, this is really interesting to me, that you designed your universe first. Tell us about how you went about designing this universe and why. Well, it, it wasn't so much designed as marinated, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been writing short stories with Kovach in them. And none of them were published. Nobody, nobody was interested in them. But, but in each short story, a certain amount of the universe had already been described. And so by the time I got around to writing Altered Carbon, this stuff had, was there. And, and all it really required was to kind of join the dots, put it, put it all together. I think that provided me with a base, and without which I would have been certainly having to work a lot harder. After that, it just gathers its own mass, I think, because once you've created it, the more you write, the more you start to think, ah, that's an interesting angle, and, and you explore that angle, and, uh, and off you go. And in fact, I mean, certain elements of the novel I'm writing now, which is Kovach 3, spun off more or less whole from some minor aspect of the background of Altered Carbon. Same is true to some extent of Broken Angels. I mean, the whole el the question of the Martians, which doesn't really make itself felt in Altered Carbon, it's there as a part of the background, but it's not really important. And that comes to the fore in Broken Angels. So you kind of create this stuff and then, you know, cut it up and use it as as you see fit. But, I mean, there's a real joy in doing that. There's a real joy in, in generating a world and, and especially the point at which you find yourself creating something and you think, well, that fits in perfectly with uh, this thing over here that I invented a little while before, you know, when it all starts to come together. Tell us a little bit about the grit and specificity that makes your work so immediate. I'm thinking of the opening of Altered Carbon, which could really be out of a mystery novel, any mystery novel, over the last 50 years. It's people getting shot. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a certain immediacy to people getting shot. I think, really, for me, that beginning was... I wanted it because... I had this killer first line for the beginning of chapter one, you know, uh, sometimes coming back from the dead can be can be rough. And... That was, you know, I could have gone from that point, but then I would have needed to have a kind of retrospective and an explanation of how Kovac ended up shot dead in the first place. And so it occurred to me that, well, maybe I should just go back and tell that as the prologue. 
And then so I borrowed the scenario, Millsport and the the orbital guardians firing, test firing into the reach and the, the room lit in blues and, and the gun battle and so forth. And all of that was lying around in short stories I'd already written. It just kind of commended itself as a way to get in. Not least because I think, you know, the one thing you don't expect at the beginning of the novel is for your central character to get killed. It was nice to do that. And then it's like, oh, right. And, and then you start. But the, yeah, the immediacy of noir is something that I'm... I'm very keen on. I think it's one of the reasons that people, writers like William Gibson, did so well, is because what they brought, what they imported into science fiction was a rawness and a, and a grit, which you find all the time in crime writing, I mean, the American hard-boiled variety of crime writing anyway. It's a commonplace, it's a staple of the genre. That, you know, the crime writers don't even think about it anymore, it's just there. First of all, I think a lot of hard SF lacks a basic human bedrock t- t- to make you sort of feel for the characters. And secondly, there's kind of sleazy element which... A lot of SF writers seem to have a problem getting to grips with. They, they don't do sleazy well. I'd always found that the SF that really gripped me was the stuff that had a very, very human element to it. And that element was usually defined by mess, you know, ambiguity, confusion, grief, excitement, lust, the, all these sort of messy bits and pieces that go to make up human beings and the way they work. Those were the things that, that really, really drew me to, for example, Paul Anderson, who, you know, one of the one of the great science fiction writers. This time and time again defined his work, that the characters were often unsure of what they were doing, were, you know, were acting out of mixed motives, doing wrong things, in fact, for what they believed to be the right reasons, and, and conversely doing right things for, for what turned out to be the wrong reasons. I found myself quite an early stage juxtaposing that with the, the kind of Asimov line of, of writing, which was very much more about the science and the ideas, but the characters very often didn't stand up. They were established early on, they were pretty two-dimensional, and they were really only there in order to move the plot forward. Whereas you get a feeling with Anderson's work that he really cared about these characters. There was passion in the way that they spoke to each other and in the way that they behaved. And that's what grabbed me. I mean, that's what really, before long, I'd given up on the, on the hard SF stuff, and I was looking for more by people like Anderson. And so William Gibson came along and, and just... I think maybe welded the two back together again because he's quite big on the science in his science fiction. You're aware that this is very much about the technology. But at the same time, his characters are very real and very sort of gritty and human. I think that if you've written a novel in which characterization isn't important, then that's not going to be a very good novel. Yeah. At best, it's going to spark a few... Uh, moments of interest in in the reader but I don't believe that you can write a good novel that doesn't engage at a human level and so you know that's what I try to do and obviously the best way to engage or the let's say perhaps the swiftest way to engage at a human level is to basically go for the the human basics which, which are yeah sex death conflict love hate, rage. These are the things that really make us tick, I think. They're not staples of, of everyday life for most of us, fortunately, because we've, you know, we've got a sort of cap of civilization on that. But below the surface, below the cap, this stuff is still going on. Could you talk about reader immersion techniques, the way you bring the reader into the world? One of the things I like about your science fiction novels is the, the parts where the future includes chunks of the past that seem Mm-hmm. Unchanged. Mm-hmm. Well, what I don't—I mean, I don't know if I'm the only person doing this, but what I find is that very often when I'm writing a scene in a novel, that scene extends itself in all directions. So, as well as extending itself forward in the kind of time frame of the novel, it also automatically extends itself backwards. By definition, characters tend to say things which bear reference to something that's happened before. And what I basically did was to just take the brakes off and let 
Kovach refer to all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's a first-person narrative, so he can refer directly to you, the reader, which is obviously more economical than, than third-person, where if you start to refer to the reader too much directly, then it starts to seem like an information dump. Kovach can talk to you. And, yeah, in- increasingly you kind of... I would be writing something and it would swell up because I'd be... Kovach will refer back to something else and it will be tied to some event in his previous life and so forth. And, and I mean... Again, I think it's all part of being human. By definition, we are creatures of our pasts. We're defined by what we have done and experienced in the past. And I like to feel that my characters also have that. But the only way you can give them that, obviously, is to, is to take an interest in that past, which, again, an awful lot of SF, I find, doesn't do that because it's not really concerned with the characters. It's concerned with driving the plot forward and dealing with the, the, the technological issues. So it doesn't really matter what happened to these people in their past. Whereas, you know, for me, it's all important what happened to Kovac in his past because his past is what makes him what he is now. The way of doing it, I don't know. I mean, I, I read some very wise words from Roger Zelazny once, an article he wrote in an anthology, where he said that he used to try and, when he was writing a novel, he would always write a very short piece, not even really a full story, just maybe a mood piece, a short piece involving the character that he was using as narrator, which would never actually appear in the novel, but it would get referred to a few times. And so his argument was, but by doing that, you make the character larger than the narrative. Because the character has something that exists which is not included in the story that you're reading, that character, by definition, is larger than the narrative and and therefore more lifelike. It gives you stuff to refer back to. One of my favourite ever Zelazny stories, there's a short story called Half Jack, about a guy who is basically, he's half human and and half machine. He's had his body sectioned vertically and he's had half of himself replaced with android units because he's a deep space pilot and he basically he just plugs the mechanical part of himself into the ship and sails it and the, the human side of him is put to sleep while he's doing that I mean it really is more a mood piece than anything but there's this great sequence where at the beginning he's down on the beach skimming stones and then he wanders back up and he gets to the apartment of this girl that he's seeing and he gets to the door and describes the door is broken he said the door is still smashed still not repaired from when he kicked it in the night of the fire and that's it. You don't ever get to hear any more about the fire. But you're able to, from that single sentence, you are able to obviously infer that, OK, there was a fire, he kicked the door down with his, presumably his superhuman foot, and rescued the girl, and that's how come they're now together. And he achieves all of that with such an economy, it's practically zen, it's just a half a sentence, which gives you the entire background context. You never hear about the fire. Because the fire is not relevant to the story he's telling you right now. And that really was superb. I remember at the time it struck me as what a fantastic stroke that was. Not least because then I really wanted to know about the fire. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about the influence of noir fiction in Altered Carbon. Okay. Who wins, Gibson or Elroy? (laughs) I think, in the end, I think it's Gibson. I, I like Elroy a lot. I mean, I really do. And... I would say I've even taken some style pointers from him. I mean, he's the way he writes, especially in, in recent years, the last few books, absolutely unbelievable. No one else writes like that. This kind of fast-forward, everything is cut out except the absolute necessary aspect of the sentence. And I got a lot of time for that. But in the end, I think what I loved about Gibson's work was that he imagined these future worlds and took you into them. And that's really what Alter Carbon should do. You know, I mean, it, it's a noir tale. It's a detective story, and it can be read purely in that way. But what I like to think is that at the end of it, what you come away from the story with, above all, is a sense of, oh, my God, wow, you know, what, what if that were possible? Uh, now, obviously, you don't do that with a James Elroy novel. You know, you read the novel, and it's, I say it's an experience in like, being, being dipped in sleaze for 400, <laughs> 500 pages. And you come away sort of shaken and stirred up and, and, and excited. And, you know, they're fantastic books. But I don't think you ever necessarily take away a sense of, of wonder 
a sense of sort of what if. For my money, the real value of Elroy's work is that what he's doing is he's kind of unpicking this this kind of bullshit Reaganite lie about how how wonderful everything was before the sixties. That then the you know the hippies came and ruined everything, but before that, America was this wonderful land of of sort of chivalry and love and everybody sitting at home in family units and being happy. And Elroy basically just rips that apart and and says, no, forget it. You know, it was never like that. You know, here are some stories from the fifties. This is what it was like. It's no different now to it ever to, to than it ever was. And that, you know, there's a, there's a real value in that. I don't think Alter Carbon necessarily sells you that line. I don't think it necessarily tells you that things have never changed. Maybe it tells you things won't ever change. What you hopefully come away from Altered Carbon with is a sense of, yeah, oh, wow, what if? What if that technology existed? Well, what would that mean? So I guess Gibson wins in the end. In the sequel, Broken Angels, you moved away from mystery a bit more mm-hmm. towards what I would call a mystical orientation, an other, an unknowable other mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that that uh, is 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 becoming apparent uh, in in the way we live is that human beings don't like the idea of living in a rational world. Uh, they don't seem to to cope with it well. There's this constant seeking after otherness, you know, something beyond. And I mean, it's the source of many of our problems. Obviously, I mean, this kind of requirement to believe in, you know. If not a religion, then some kind of new age bullshit, the laying on of hands, healing, magical this, magical that. It, it seems that we want to believe that there's something beyond the material world and, and you know, that life is not the thing that the scientists are basically laying out for us. So in order to kind of make the world I'm creating in these books real, I've got to provide that. I did a little bit in Altered Carbon with the character of Jimmy DeSoto. You know, he crops up in Kovacs' hallucinations. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, is this guy really a ghost? or who's haunting Kovach because he's come to Earth, which is where this guy was from originally. Or is this just a hallucination from Kovach's screwed-up thought processes? The answer to that is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's not really, it doesn't really matter because the, the end result is the same, whether he's a ghost or whether he's a figment of Kovach's imagination. His effect on Kovach is the same, and, and you don't need to worry about what he really is. But it hopefully gave a hint of there being maybe being something more, but we don't know. And in Broken Angels, I kind of amped that up a bit. And yeah, sure, there's the idea of Cemetery and, and what he represents and Kovacs and his hallucination where he's facing Cemetery. And, and I mean, what actually happens there is, yeah, Kovacs kills death or God or whatever, you know, whatever Cemetery might stand for. And again, I don't ever actually come down and, and ask the reader to think either that Kovacs really went to another realm, a spirit realm, and killed death, or whether Kovacs is hallucinating because he's screwed up from all the fighting. In the end, again, it doesn't really matter, because if it's real and he's been and faced the king of death and killed him, well, that tells you something about Kovacs. If it's not real, if it's a hallucination and he dreamed that he did this, well, equally that tells you something about Kovacs. Uh, and hopefully what you're left with is just a resonance, a sense of possibility. And let's face it, that's what we're left with in real life. We all know somebody who says they've seen a ghost or somebody who knows somebody who's seen a ghost. And, and so when it comes to the issue of ghosts, whether they exist or not, you're left basically to make a decision based on largely anecdotal evidence. And in the same way, hopefully, you come away from Broken Angels thinking, well, was that a spiritual experience or was that just a hallucination? I don't know. And you're asking me as the writer, I as the writer, I don't know either. And when that happens, I'm usually very pleased. You know, when something in the book is very ambiguous, whether it be something like that or even, you know, something that a character does. And I I was asked in Minneapolis a couple of days ago, somebody asked me, you know, why did Kovacs do this? And I had to say, uh, 
I don't know. And then someone in the audience explained it to me. <laughs> Guy said, well, I, I had always thought that he acted this way because, and then he gave me this rationale and explanation, and I said, yeah, good, yeah, sounds good to me that you've convinced me, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, and that, that very fact that it is ambiguous and it's open to question and, and that people will sort of rack their brains and try and come up with, a, with what they think is the right explanation, to me that's a sign that I'm, I'm doing my job, you know, I'm getting there, I'm getting it right. Because, yeah, reality is like that. Reality is ambiguous. And I th there's something very soul-destroying about a novel, be it science fiction or any other kind, where you're absolutely sure of the motivations of all of the characters. And everything that happens to the characters, you know what it is and why it's happened and where it's come from. And I, I find that kind of, that's a sort of desert of the soul. There's no, there's no space for the reader there. And, I, you know, one of the things I think you have to do with art, with movies, books, whatever it might be, is you've got to give the reader some space, you know, for, let them create their own world around what you've created. And a good movie that does that, I think, is The Hitcher. I bought the uh, special edition on DVD a little while ago, and Rutger Hauer, the actor, was saying much the same thing. He was saying, I did all these things, and then there was all this dispute about what it really meant, you know, does it mean that the character's from hell, or is he this, or is he whatever, and, you know, is there a homosexual relationship going on between the two characters, or is there not? And, and he was, you know, obviously quite exasperated <laughs> with all this, and he just said, well, it doesn't matter, you know, it's, it's, you, you make it up yourself, you decide. And yeah, I mean, that's what made that film work for me, was the ambiguity. You didn't know. And you never do know. You never find out. You're left with some, some sensation of what it might have been, and you just have to make up your own mind. And meanwhile, you follow the story to its conclusion. To me, that's the essence of good storytelling. I think bad storytelling is when it's plotted out for you and it's so clear and simple and that, that everything works the way it should and the characters do the things that you, you think they should. And you know there are never any questions. There's never any wonder of, of why or how or could it have been different. That, that's, you know, that's not a novel. That's like a, that's a blueprint for building something. Your books are, all of them, are fueled, it seems, by a rage. It's a political rage. And you cite some political texts at the back of Broken Angels and more in your new novel, Market Forces. Mm -hmm. Tell us about how your nonfiction reading launches your fictional hatred and rage. Right. Well, I think, yeah, you're right. There's a certain amount of anger in, in, in the background. Some of it is the stuff I talked about with the, having to put up with all this stuff in the classroom as a, an EFL teacher. Some of it is just from the newspapers. Some of it you just read what the guys that are supposed to be our leaders are doing and you can't help but feel rage. And the reason that I cited those books, especially in Market Forces, I think, was because I'm a big fan of Michael Moore. And one of the things that he sort of goes on about time and time again is you can actually do something. You don't have to sit here and just take this. You can. There are things you can do in a democratic society to change things for the better. So I, I guess that I am. this is my little attempt to do something for the better. At the end of the book, there's a list of further reading. And if people want to go away and read those books and then maybe take action on the strength of that, then that's great. That would have been better than just they read the book they maybe think about it for a couple of days and then and then they never think about it ever again. I'm pretty resigned to the fact that I, we don't change things by writing a novel. I don't believe novels have a huge impact. I think Uncle Tom's Cabin is probably the last time that happened. We're just too saturated with it. I like to think that each novel maybe is like a little 
This is an image I've stolen from the Home Secretary in the UK, David Blunkett, back when he was a socialist. He, a long time ago, before he went completely fucking crazy, he, sorry David, he said he was he was on a, a local council and he was a great believer in social justice and so forth. And what he, someone asked him whether they thought, whether he thought that he was achieving anything in the grand scheme of things. And he said, well, in the fight for social justice, we are like drips of water on a rock. Individually, we count for almost nothing. But over time, the rock is worn away. And all you can hope is that you contribute to that process. I, I thought that was a wonderful thing to say. It's a shame, as I say, he's gone totally off the rails now and, and appears to have become a fascist. That was a wonderful thing to say. And I'd like to think that, yeah, the books I write, they're like little drips. And maybe some of the people who read them, maybe they go away and read these other books. And then maybe because of that, they do something, you know, set up a protest group or, or something like that. Maybe that happens. I'd like to think that it does. And that's really the reason that I put a reading list at the end of Market Forces. It was just to kind of hand things on to say, well, this book is a part of something and let's hope that there's some value in it. As far as my own politics are concerned, the books are not cited because I agree 100% with everything that's written in them. They're cited because I think they are insights into the world that we need. People need to read them to get a sense of, of what's going on. They can then make up their own minds about whether it's right or wrong, but we all need to be doing this. We all need to be reading far more, finding out far more, and hopefully also taking action far more. One of the things that depresses me is that we've reached some kind of apex of democratic social functions in the West. We, you know, we have democracy in, in, in as good a form as it's ever been in, I think. And we're just throwing it away. People just don't seem... They're turning away into this kind of internet porn, MTV, new age, cure, virtual reality, which seems to be infinitely preferable to the hard realities that we actually face. And I think it's time to stop that. I think it would be such a shame if after centuries of struggle, all the, the activists, all of the pain and suffering that's gone into bringing us to where we are now, it would be such a shame if that was just thrown away because we just couldn't be bothered. It was just too much hassle to get up out of the armchair. These are interesting times. I think that's a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. We are living in interesting times and I think it's time for individual people in the Western world to take a stand to to actually get out there and protest. A lot of them already are. don't want to be too critical because there are huge numbers of people out there. They're protesting on the streets. They belong to organisations like Amnesty International or Greenpeace or, and so forth. There are activists and they're out there. But it really needs to become a general thing. It needs to be a part of citizenship, that as a citizen you are involved. And that involvement doesn't mean that every four years you go and put a cross on a piece of paper and then moan for the next four years about the guy that came in. It's got to be more than that. And if it's not more than that, then we're going to find ourselves in some very serious trouble very soon, I think. Market Forces, tell us a little bit about the novel. And it's not a Takeshi Kovacs novel. No. So tell us why and how it came about. Really, it started life with an advert. This is years ago. This is back in the late 80s. I was sitting watching TV with some friends. And there was an advert on for, I think it was Virgin Atlantic or possibly British Airways. An advert about flying across the Atlantic anyway. And the scenario is that you've got head office back in London with all these kind of fat, complacent guys. And the hero of our advert is this young gun who's gone out to the New York office and he's decided after a placement of six months there that, that he wants to change things. And obviously for the guys back in London, this change is bad. They don't like this idea. So the ad opens and they're talking about how he's coming back for this meeting and they're saying, so he thinks that after six months in the New York office, he can tell us how to run things. Don't worry, I've booked him on the red eye. He'll be getting in at seven o'clock this morning. The idea is he'll arrive having travelled on the red eye flight. He won't have had any decent sleep and he'll be absolutely shattered. He'll come to the meeting early in the morning and get ripped to shreds. 
But because he flies with whoever they were, he gets a great night's sleep and he storms into the meeting at the end of the advert, slaps down his attaché case and says, right, let's get to it then. And they're all scared. It obviously was an effective advert because I remember it very clearly 15 years later. But what happened was the guy that I was watching TV with just kind of leaned across to me and he goes, oh, God, they think they live in a fucking jungle, don't they? And so I started not long after that to think about what would it be like if they really did live in a jungle? What would it be like if the kind of life and death consequences of their actions in investing or not investing in a certain country or a certain stock, what if those consequences came home to them in a similarly life or death situation? What would that be like? I thought about it and I thought about it. And a little while later, I wrote a short story called Some Serious Driving, which was about two commodity dealers who killed each other in a duel for a promotion, an empty motorway north of London. And I sent it to loads of people, couldn't get it published anywhere. I sent it to Interzone in the UK and had it back with a note saying, you write very well, but I wasn't able to sympathize with either of these unpleasant yuppie characters. <laughs> <laughs> which was the point. But anyway, as I said, it didn't get published. Like all of the short stuff that I wrote, I didn't find a home. And it sat on a pile of, of other stuff I'd written for ages. And then a few years after that, I ran into someone, friend of a friend, who was learning to be a producer at film school in London. And she was looking for material, and someone had told her that I was a writer, aspiring writer. And so she asked to have a look at the material that, I, that I'd written. And she picked this story out and said, I think we can turn this into a movie. So she asked me to think about it and to, to write a screenplay, and she gave me lessons in how you do that. So I had to think about it, and I'd, all through however many years it had been since I'd seen the advert, that we were living at the height of the kind of the, the sort of Thatcherite and post-Thatcherite revolution in, in Britain. So you had all of this neoliberal free market bullshit coming out, which I'm sure you had plenty of it over here as well. I mean, the Reagan we, era was the same. <clears throat> yes, we had the Reagan years. It was yeah, really right. enjoyable. Yeah, well, okay. So you, you're familiar with the, <laughs> with, with the rhetoric. So, you know, the, this, all this rhetoric had been around forever, and I, and I was angry enough to do something now. So I, I kind of extrapolated and thought, well, okay, these two guys who are trying to kill each other in the duel, what is it that they do for a living? What do they deal in? And so I came up with the idea that what they deal in is, is basically wars. So the theory goes uh, as follows. At the moment, you've got private investment houses who invest money in what they call emerging markets, yeah, which is usually developing countries like Brazil, somewhere like that. So my idea was that we shift this on and that they, they've, you've now got an even harder edged investment called conflict investment. Conflict investment involves looking at a country that's torn by civil war or revolution or whatever, deciding who you think the best player is and then backing them. And you give them, you buy them um, arms and material and mobile phone cover, satellites and things like this. Give them what they need to win. In return for when they win, you've got like 23% of their GDP over a 15-year term or something like that. And in the same way that in the 80s, the kind of stampede towards mergers and acquisitions, it volatized the, you know, the stock market and the commodities market as well. In the same way, what you've got here is a volatization of, of global politics. Because if the guy who's running this country is not your guy, then you've got nothing. But if you can foment a small revolution or a civil war or something and you get someone else who is your guy to take over, well, then you've got something. So in the same way that, yeah... All these guys who were making the merger and acquisition deals, they were getting commission every time this happened. So they didn't care if, if a merger or, or a takeover was a good idea. As long as it went through, that was what mattered because then they got paid. These guys don't really care whether the country's stable or not. All they care about is that they're getting paid and, and they get paid by fomenting uh, this kind of uh, fighting. So, so the, the toast at the quarterly functions of, the, of these companies is uh, small wars, 
long may they smolder. Because, yeah, small war is, you can make money out of a small war. You know, but big war, that's bad for business. You try and avoid that. But small wars, that's great. That's just sort of outside context. That's the globalization. And then on the inside, yes, we go back to this thing of the guys dueling for their promotion. The idea is that there's a global recession, a serious global, or a global crash, really. Uh, in the early years of of the 21st century. And in a desperate attempt to shed personnel, these companies had to find a way to downsize. They couldn't do it based on performance because there'd be no performance sort of with the economy in a tailspin like that. So what they decided was, yeah, okay, well, you know, you you guys all drive into work and the guy who gets here first gets to keep his job, you know, and everybody else is out. And then over time, that becomes refined and it, it gets down to where it's not enough just to get to work first. You've got to get to work, and the other guy has got to not arrive. In other words, you've got to kill him somewhere on en route. And if you don't kill him in the crash, then you've got to get out and kill him with your bare hands afterwards. And so you end up with this very violent, unstable uh, world within the corporations and a very violent, unstable world outside the corporations as well. There's no one else on the road except for the executives because no one who isn't very rich can afford to drive because the green agenda is finally being taken seriously by governments in the Western world. And the only way, obviously, to stop all this greenhouse emission is basically just to put huge taxes on cars and anything to do with driving, likewise on plane flights as well. The country is set in Britain, but in the, the whole world has kind of slid back and you've got a dystopian future whereby... An awful lot of people are living in poverty. The gap between rich and poor has widened enormously. And the very rich still get to drive and still get to fly around the world. But everybody else is back to kind of 1930s levels of poverty. And they don't, you know, they they don't have cars. They couldn't possibly afford to own them. They couldn't even afford to pay for the fuel to put in the tank. In that sense, it's a critique of the way we're going, I'm very much afraid. You know, I mean, every indicator you care to look at says that the gap between rich and poor has widened enormously in the last 25 years. And it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Globally, if anything, it's accelerating. And to say within countries like the United States, the UK, other parts of Europe, it certainly doesn't seem to be slowing down either. It's an attempt to critique that, but in a different way, because what I find is that I get fed up with arguing with people and trying to sell them the idea of, of a just society. You know, you just get so tired of, in the end, you're tired of hearing your own voice mouthing these kind of left liberal platitudes. So I thought, well, okay, instead of resisting, why don't we just go with it, let them go and say, okay, let's see what this would look like. My template for this really is a movie Lethal Weapon, which I I guess you probably have seen at some point. You know, there's a bit where Riggs goes up on a roof. They're called to a potential suicide. There's a guy up on the roof who's threatening to jump. And Martin Riggs, the, the Mel Gibson character, he's he's suicidal himself. It, it would appear. Anyway, he he agrees to go up and talk the guy down, uh, which you know is, is, is a moment of some comedy. Anyway, he tries to talk the guy down. He can't talk him round, and in, he handcuffs him to his to him so that the two of them are joined together and all the rest of it. And the guy is still refusing and saying, "You yeah, know, I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump." And suddenly. He snaps, the cat, Riggs just snaps, and he whips around, he's eye-to-eye with this guy, you know, they're, they're 50 stories up or whatever, and he's eye-to-eye with him, and uh, and he's just glaring into his face with this manic expression, cause, which we've already seen when he snaps earlier in the film, and he just goes, Do you really want to? Do you really want to jump? Okay, asshole, well, that's fine by me, let's jump! And, and then pushes him over the edge. I'm not going to tell you what happens next in case you've not seen the film. But uh, and, and so Market Forces, I think, in a sense, is me handcuffing myself to George Bush and Tony Blair and the rest of them saying, do you really want to jump, asshole? OK, let's jump. That's fine by me. This is what happens if you jump, you know, and, and it's very, very unpleasant for almost all concerned. Market Forces is a satire, but you really pay attention. It's not a 
cartoony satire? How do you stay on the realistic side and still retain your savagery? Oh, right. Well, that, that, that's actually relatively easy. It's the characters because once it's set up and you're, you're writing the characters, they become real in their own right and you're concerned about the relationship between them and, and the central character, Chris, is having this crisis of faith. Does he believe in what he's doing? If he doesn't, why is he doing it? His wife wants him to get out, but the question is, what will they do if he does get out? He's made a close friend in the company who he, he really likes and gets on well with and looks up to. He's attracted to this kind of glitzy media star who, who's also very interested in him because of his prowess on the roads. So so once those characters come to the fore, it then becomes very easy to make it real because you, you, you're really not... You know, it's no longer just the bare bones of a plot. It, you're writing the characters. The characters are what drive it. And, you know, hopefully that's what gives it the bite. That's what makes it feel real because you, you, you hopefully can empathize with the characters, even the bad guys, I hope. Tell us a little bit, if you can, about what to expect from you in the future. Long term, I don't know. I'm hoping to live till I'm sort of 80-odd, I guess. <laughs> uh, there's another book coming after Market Forces, which is Kovach 3. That's already on the, you know, on the production line. And I'm writing it slowly because I'm having... It, it's, it's a problem with writing a series of books about the same scenarios and, and characters. You find that thing, throwaway lines from previous books are now mesh you in and you, you, you've got to actually explain yourself. Kovach 3 takes place on Harlan's world and, and kind of examines some of, some of Kovach's past in more detail. The problem is now I have to go back and reinvent that stuff. And uh, I, I had a call from my... About it, more than a year ago, I had a call from my French publisher about altered carbon. He's saying, "Yeah, just just one question from the translator: uh, What is a bottleback?" And I said, "Well, I uh, uh, don't really know." He's going, "No, but you put them in the bottlebacks. You know, it's uh, like a fish." And I'm going, "Yeah, it's like a fish. It's I don't know. It's like a shark. It's bigger than a shark. Uh, more dangerous, and uh, it's smaller than a whale. Though I think you can eat them. You know, they're good to eat." And the guy goes, "Yeah, but." Did they come from Earth? Did you know? Did we did we bring them from Earth with the colonists, or you know, are they native to Harlan's world, or is it some kind of hybrid? I'm going. I, I don't know. I don't know because I never I never carried it that far. I hadn't thought about that. Now, of course, I have to think about it. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm stuck needing to reinvent. So it's it's moving slowly, but I hope the end result will be worth the wait. That it's it's, it's probably going to be the more the most densely textured of of the Kovach novels so far, and uh, we get to find out a lot more about him. And that hopefully will be out in the UK about this time next year, if I make my deadline. I would think that it will, it will be coming out from Delray the following year, so early 2006. As a writer, you spent a not good number of years, it seems, sitting on a pile of short stories that you were driven to write but weren't getting a good reception for. Yeah, that's true. And you shopped, I understand, Altered Carbon around to American publishers who didn't want it originally? Well, I'd, I didn't ever send it directly to American publishers. I sent it to uh, a number of American agents who weren't interested in it, no. I did actually have one one agent. The uh, Ralph Fitchinansa agency in, in New York, one of their guys took a look at it initially and seemed quite interested, but then rejected it. But to be fair to him, that was at a time when everybody else was rejecting it too, because I hadn't really done enough polishing after a year of trying to sell it to everybody, I then took it and, and re sort of went over it and polished it a bit more carefully and then sent it back, and it's the polished version that actually made it. But, you know, I sent it to a lot of people, definitely, yeah. How, as a writer, did you keep going through all that? Well, I'm very stubborn, dangerously so. I mean, uh, you know, not always, it's not always a good thing, stubbornness. I'm, I, once I've determined to do something, it's very hard to stop me. And 
it was the only thing I wanted out of life was to be you know, a, a writer, uh, a full-time writer preferably. And so I just wasn't going to be stopped. And uh, in, you know, in the face of many years of not getting anything published at all, uh, in the face of knowing that even if I did get it published, it was unlikely I'd be able to go full-time until I'd written maybe five, six novels, and even then maybe not. I just kept going without, you know, I mean, it's, it's incredibly stupid when you think about it. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the you know, the people, all the people who rejected my, my earlier work, it wasn't good enough. I mean, I wrote a lot of short stories. I'm not a very good short story writer. My short stories are either ultra-compressed because there's too much in stuff in them or they're just kind of mood pieces that don't really go anywhere. So I, I'm not surprised, looking back, that they were rejected. They just weren't good enough. And I certainly guard no rancor about that. But, yeah, you just got to keep going. I mean, you just got to keep believing in yourself despite the fact that nobody else does. Well, again, that's not fair. I always had friends. I had family who, who sort of kept encouraging me. But, the tr- you know, it, it, you can imagine that when, when you get past the 10-year mark and you still had not a single thing in print, it must get quite hard for those people to keep saying, no, no, you keep it up. I'm sure you'll make it in the end, you know. It starts to sound a bit hollow, and you, you yourself have got to start saying damn maybe you know what if I'm wrong what if you know what if this is not what I'm good at so I mean you know for all those people who sent stuff back to me saying you you obviously have talent you undoubtedly can write those were the sort of tiny tiny little flowers in the wilderness that that helped me uh, help me keep moving but in the end it's just down to a huge amount of stubbornness you just keep going and you don't stop you know despite the fact that that you're not necessarily gonna gonna even if you get published you know you're not necessarily gonna get your happy ending i've been incredibly lucky there's no doubt about it you can never never underestimate the the role of luck in these things i have one last question for you sure tell us about the movies in you are we going to see some movies based on your work they are very cinematic well as you probably know altered carbon's been optioned by warner brothers at the be at the behest of joel silver Uh, apparently joel silver having had it pitched to him, rang up Warner Brothers and said, I want you to get this for me. Money is not an object. And I mean, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't you just love to be able to make phone calls like that? <laughs> Buy me a car. Money is not an object. That, that's in the works. The option comes up for renewal May of this year, and we'll see what happens then. I mean, there, there obviously there are three possibilities here. Either they say, yeah, um, principal photography starts next week. Tom Cruise is driving down as we speak, you know, which will be great. Uh, Yeah, alternatively, they may say something like, well, you know, uh, Tom Cruise can't get a car uh, or or is lost somewhere, and so we're not going to be able to start just yet, so we'd like to to renew the option. And they'll renew in May for another 18 months, and and then, you know, then I'll be eating my nails for another 18 months, and we'll be in the same position. But I will have been paid a large amount of money for sitting on my ass, so shouldn't really complain. The third option is, of course, that they uh, they turn around and they go, ah, well, you know, actually, we've been thinking about it, and this is a piece of shit. We don't want it. If that happens, then you know, I get it back, and we can try and sell it to somebody else. I have no idea which of those three is likely. I'm told the most probable one is is option two that you know that they will just renew. I mean, another British writer, Mike Marshall Smith, he had his book optioned by Steven Spielberg, and I understand Spielberg renewed the option four times, so every year for four years. And he renewed $100,000 per renewal. So, I mean, that yeah, amazing, isn't it? And they never did anything with it. He made Minority Report instead. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, that that's a possibility. It may be that, that I'll, you know, Warner Brothers will keep renewing and I'll just keep getting money for sitting on my ass and doing nothing. And I've got no problem with that because it helps me, you know, obviously. Without the Hollywood money, I would not be a full-time writer yet. And And it's always worth remembering that. I mean, I... Whatever kind of film they make of it, uh, they've enabled me to, to sort of 
live the dream of writing full time and and you know write more because of that. So you know you you, you can't really complain, can you? I guess not. We've been speaking with Richard Morgan. His first novel is Altered Carbon. His new novel out in the U.S. is Broken Angels. His latest novel out in the U.K. is Market Forces. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, It's been my pleasure, Rick. Thanks. Thanks.